This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to another episode of Footnotes, where we help you become a more informed advocate, neighbor, and believer. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and my, oh my, what an episode we have for you. I am talking to first-time author and first-time guest on Footnotes, Danielle Danny Coke Balfour. She has written the book, Heart on Fire, 100 Meditations on Loving Your Neighbor Well. This is an incredible book for all you folks who are just want to get involved in justice. This book is motivation to help you get on that path of justice and stay on it with these 100 meditations that are little daily encouragements for you. I mentioned this a couple of times throughout my conversation with Danny. I think her particular brilliance is being able to take abstract concepts about justice and literally illustrating them. She is a visual artist. And so this book is full of full color, gorgeous illustrations, original illustrations that she's created that go along with the concepts that she's talking about. And so she illustrates the concept of equity versus equality, what systemic injustice or systemic racism looks like and how to unstop the, the the blockage and all of these different things. So we go there, we talk about how she became a viral sensation through her art uh, during the 2020 uprisings, how she translated that into a broader uh, work calling and ministry, how she's used that to to create this book. And of course, she's a youngin, y'all. Uh, more and more people are youngins to me these days, but she has wisdom beyond her years, which you are going to hear immediately when she starts talking about her work. If you didn't know her before, uh, you will absolutely remember her and want to follow her. You can do that on Instagram at O Happy Danny, O H H A P P Y D A N I, and you can view hundreds of her pieces of original art. The book is Heart on Fire. It's available wherever books are sold, including in superstores like Target. So make sure you go out, grab your copy, support Danny Coke Balfour, and enjoy our interview with her. And we are here with Danny Coke Balfour. Welcome to Footnotes. I am so honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Are you kidding me? The honor is all mine. I can't believe we haven't done this before. Um because uh we we I love I love the podcast where like like we know each other in real life and not just mm -hmm. uh you know through social media. We'll get to that. But um for folks who have for some reason not heard of you or don't know much about your work, maybe they don't have internet where they are or something like that. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. So my name is Danny. I am an illustrator. I, I am an artivist is the new phrase we're using out artivist. here in the streets. It's not, it's actually not new. 
and it was new to me, but yes, artivist. It's a combination of art and activism. And basically, I like to say that I take art and use it to make complex ideas more digestible and easier to understand for the everyday person. Activism for dummies through art. (laughs) (laughs) That is what I need. Activism for non-activists, I guess. Yeah, I, uh, I I think it's really cool. It's definitely in the racial justice realm, the space that I like to occupy, but I also talk about empathy and hope and mm. things like that. Mm. Radical, subversive, <laughs> gospel ideas. I like this. So yeah. um, I, 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 I have a horrible, horrible memory. And it just, it's also when you meet people who are of like mind and spirit, it also kind of seems like, you've known them for longer than you have, but I don't actually remember how we first met or interacted. Do you? Yeah. So I I don't remember the first time we met in person, but I do remember when I was on past the mic, you actually were not there. There it is. See, I and- knew I would have remembered. Okay. All right. Yeah, I did. I did pass the mic with Tyler, Tyler Burns. I'm and sorry. We should have put me our best foot forward. I'm so sorry. <laughs> What's funny is he mentioned to me that he mentioned me to you and you had not heard of me, but you were open to pass the mic talking to me, which I was so grateful for because I have been a fan for years. So I was like, yes, I will catch Jamar another time. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see him around town. Um, Tyler Burns is the heart of pass the mic. Yeah, let's just be real. Anybody would would be fine with uh, just him on it. I'm so (laughs) glad you were on pass the mic. And um, yeah, we've been doing it's actually our 10 year anniversary. um, As we record this, we're releasing a a multi-part series about that. But it's not about us. It's about you. (laughs) So that's really cool. And we are here to talk about your first book. And I'm excited to, to get into it. But first, you're a modern day creative. We'll talk a little bit about creativity in this podcast but tell us how you got your start in art and how that art went viral yes so i've always been super artsy as a kid i would do crafts all the time my parents would take me to the dollar tree get me whatever new craft fixation i had so i've always been an artsy girl and i in in middle school i was taking art more seriously i got to take an art elective Hmm. which was so exciting uh, and then my art teacher, I don't remember if I mentioned this to you before, but my art teacher was actually giving me really bad grades because she was accusing me of tracing. She never asked me, though. She would write on my art exercises that I would turn in every week. She'd be like, don't trace. And then she'd give me like a C. Or, oh. Be careful. You're not tracing. B minus. And like, what? never asked. You never even got your day in court. She didn't. She didn't she allow you asked. to defend yourself or explain. I don't it remember was what just that good. <laughs> <laughs> I was drawing Disney characters. And so she was probably like, oh, she. And so I would add extra lines. So I'm like, yeah, this definitely won't look like Tracing. And that only made me more guilty. No, because it even looked better. It was like more detail. It looked like I was trying to hide the fact oh, that I traced. Oh, got it. Got it. What that I never did. Wild. Anyway. You know what? That reminds me. Of, I wrote. Uh, I, I write. I write about this in my upcoming book, "The Spirit of Justice." Phyllis Wheatley was a poet, and she she learned classical Greek, Latin. She read all the all the classic works, and she became so good with words that when she came out with her book of poetry, first African American woman to do so, 
white people didn't believe that she had written it because they didn't believe that a black person could write so well, so eloquently, so beautifully. So she had to like sit down and get quizzed by these people to prove that she knew words. <laughs> and so um, wow. it just seems like that tyranny of low expectations again, even yeah. in the modern day where, oh, this child could never draw that well. Yeah. So you you had a gift that she discovered it. Is, is that something, did you think about making that a career was this just a hobby or a passion is it something you put down later mm -hmm. as you got into sports or debate club or something <laughs> as as I got out of middle school after this incident I feel as though I was pushed away from art mm. so that experience derailed me from pursuing art Whoa. as a profession but I also don't think I would have anyway because although my parents were super supportive it was definitely still understood that I needed to pursue something like business or like you know something that's really gonna bring home the bacon they never discouraged me from a creative career but they're Jamaicans you know oh. I'm a first generation American so they're immigrants and so I just knew the deal I knew the deal. I, I only <laughs> recently learned that. And do you speak Patois or anything? Very horribly. <laughs> but I do recognize when I'm hearing bad Patois, like on the Little Mermaid live action. Oh, really? Oh. It's no shade, but that was really bad. Sebastian, that was really bad, bro. Was So he wasn't I, Jamaican? No, it was not good at all. It was actually, it, it ruined part of the experience. But I'm not, hey, listen, I'm That's not trying to bring another creator down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm be honest. Honest. Well, <laughs> good honest. to know. Good to know. I, I actually haven't seen it yet, but now that uh, I know, I'll, I'll be trying to listen, see if I can deter yeah, the difference. Um, well, that's yeah. super interesting. How did you get back into art after that kind of negative experience from that teacher? Yeah. So I, I kept it as a hobby. Mm. So I, I went to school for business and I wanted to choose like the most fun option out of all that. And I think okay. I found it to be event planning. It sounded the most oh. fun in the business school. So I did hospitality, which was event planning. My idea was event planning. And throughout all this time, I was still drawing. I was designing on the side for friends. By and the then, way, where'd you go to undergrad? Georgia State. Oh, dope. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Georgia State University, the heart of the city. And... I, yeah, I studied business and I was doing art on the side and I got a job at an event planning agency after I graduated and I kept doing graphic design and just for fun. And it wasn't until I quit that job because my boss was like, DEI, why? What? Why would I do that ever? What? Yeah, that's a whole story in and of itself. But he basically told me that after I went to him with a few complaints, he basically said, you know, I just am not passionate about that. And he said, uh -uh. why would I spend money for my company or company time towards something I'm not passionate about? Like, I just don't see myself doing that because I don't see color. Oh, the old I don't see color. Mm. It's extremely effective. It's effective in making me walk away <laughs> when I hear that. <laughs> it's a repellent. It's a repellent for, for conscious people. Yes. One, 100%. So I... I quit that job and that same year for Christmas, this is 2019, I got an iPad for Christmas. And so I started learning digital art and drawing mm -hmm. December of 2019. And then January of 2020 is when I shared my first digital illustration. And it was about Martin Luther King Jr. on his holiday. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And it was very sharp. It was like just a reminder that MLK wasn't a passive peacekeeper, but a radical disruptor who challenged the status quo through organized civil disobedience. It was like a very, it was a mouthful. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> I wrote Public all that. service announcement. Protest. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was my first illustration that started being shared by people I didn't know. Hmm. And I had like 700 followers at the time. And I was like, interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder what would happen if I kept doing this during Black History Month and I create the art that I wish my boss could see. Ooh. Create all the art that I wanted. I him like to the see. chip on your shoulder motivation. Oh, definitely. It's a that. lot done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, it was also motivated by just a desire that I had for uh, a passion for justice that I had since I was younger, just of being in predominantly white spaces all the time and being like, it's too much. It's too much. Something's not right here. I didn't even have all the terminology back when I was younger, but I knew something wasn't wrong. Something wasn't right. Something wasn't right. So that also motivated me to keep creating art throughout Black History Month, just kind of talking about very basic level things, because I'm like, if they didn't know at my job, there are other people who probably don't know. Yeah. And let me just use art to tell these stories. And so I made art about why you need to be seeing in color and why that mentality of not seeing in color is a harmful one. And I talked about why you shouldn't touch a black woman's hair. Like I was really all over the place. Um, but by the end of Black History Month, I had like 10,000 followers, which I oh thought was goodness. madness. Yeah. I was like, wow. That's a really rapid growth. Mm-hmm. And then summer of 2020 happened, mm-hmm. which was devastating and very difficult for a myriad of reasons. Namely, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. And so I was speaking to that with art. Mm -hmm. And in one week, I gained 300,000 followers. Whoa. One week. Yeah. It was really wild. Was it one piece, one post that went viral? Or was it a succession of them that just this this thirst, this hunger to, to, to get more? Yes. So they would come to my page and actually see that I had been posting all this stuff for for. A wow. long time, and so all my art would went viral at once. Oh wow! They saw you weren't new to this; you were true to this, right? Exactly. Whoa! So they got so, they, they would have come for for one post and then stayed for the rest and followed you. Okay, mm-hmm. so I am. This is we're going to get to the book, but I'm so fascinated by this. Not a lot. Not everyone who gets a large following that fast is able to translate it into sustained. Um, you could say success, I would call this in this. So after that flood of people comes in a week, um, what's your first reaction? And then how do you sort of leverage that attention into um, more of your work? Yes. So it was very, very wild because along with all of these people also came press and interviews <laughs> and <laughs> media and and then I was on the Today Show and uh, I was doing projects for, for Instagram, like the company <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> and it was so much. And then on the flip side, it was a lot of hate comments. It was like 10 page angry letters and threats being sent to my email. And mm-hmm. it was just a lot of anger. And so I thought it was actually very overwhelming And I wouldn't recommend that kind of rapid growth to anybody, to be honest. Mm. But I think I decided I was filled with so much adrenaline from like our collective push of saying to each other, could this finally be it? Like, are we on the brink of maybe possibly people 
stepping up and realizing the power of this. I mean, color compromise was top of the charts. It's like <laughs> maybe <laughs> anything is possible. <laughs> no, I mean, it was just such a reminder that people were finally waking up to see the good work that had been done all along. Yeah. Yep. And so we were, I at least was very hopeful. And I think I was more, a little bit more naive than I am now. I'm definitely optimistic and hopeful still, but I think, yeah, back then I just decided to keep making that art. I was, I was working off of that collective desire by mm-hmm. finally feeling like there was maybe some sort of racial reckoning that was going to possibly happen. Yeah. And that's what kept me going. And so I just kept making the same art I was making the whole time. Unreal. Unreal. I love that story. And and to your credit, you, you I think, have been able to leverage that attention into a platform that is substantive, wise, insightful. So um, first of all, what's your Instagram handle? So everybody listening to this or watching this can go out and follow you right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. At Oh Happy Danny. There's two H's. O-H-H-A-P-P-Y Danny, D-A-N-I. Please go follow Oh Happy Danny. You can see all of her digital art with a message. And that brings us to your book, Heart on Fire, 100 Meditations on Loving Your Neighbor Well. Um, Mm -hmm. This is your first book, correct? It is my first book. Congratulations. I know that's such a milestone. The first of many, I hope. And once folks hear more about the book in this conversation and they get it for themselves, they will share that sentiment. We can't get enough. So I'm excited to talk about the rest of the book, but I was immediately sucked in right after the dedication. You dedicated to your family and your husband, Cody. Shout out to Cody. Um, Yeah. Then you write this meditation. And I was wondering if you would read that for us because we love hearing authors in their own voice and then explain a little about why you chose the title Heart on Fire. Yes. Yes. So this is actually, I wrote this poem a few years ago and it's what I decided to base the book on. So I love that it caught your attention because mission accomplished. That was what (laughs) I wanted. But so it says, don't let your heart grow cold. The world needs its warmth. With every beat life flows out, all that you do will erupt from that deep well. When the tragedies of this life pierce your heart like ice, let them be met by the warmth of compassion, the heat of love in motion. May your heart swell with a desire to remember all that is true and right and lovely and just. Let your days be the evidence of a heart on fire. And so I wrote this at a moment where I just was feeling particularly overwhelmed by something traumatic and unprecedented that was happening in the world. And I honestly don't remember what it was. That's how many of those we've been dealing with over these past few years. And I found how easy it was to choose to look away, to Mm. choose apathy, to choose like to drown this out and let your self grow cold to the worries of this life because it's just a lot easier than facing it or doing something about it or believing that you could do anything about it. And so I wanted to remind myself and anyone else who was reading this to fight apathy with compassion Mm. and to remember the good things the true and the right and the lovely and the just things and let that continue to propel us towards living a life of good work. So we're reminded that we might not be able to change the whole world, but the little things that we do in our spheres of influence with the gifts and the skills that we've been given, 
all that works together for the, you know, the good of those around us. And so that's what I wanted to remind myself and anyone else who read it. That is gorgeous. And the way you put it is, is quite beautiful. And I want to tell folks like you are an artist, you are a visual artist, and the book is packed full of gorgeous illustrations, wonderful color, but also your words are poetry. I'm skipping ahead here, but, um, who are your influences literarily? Like, so who, who inspires you to use words well? Mm. So I think while I was writing this book, the reading I kept going back to besides Dr. King, of course, was Howard Thurman. Mm, Yes. I really like Howard Thurman. And I referenced him in one of these pieces in here called we work from rest because he talked about how work and rest are one entity. Mm. And I just loved that language and the way he would communicate. Sometimes they would be super long meditations. Sometimes they would be short. I chose the word meditation from him because he cho- huh. chose it. Wow. And I like that guy. Yeah. So <laughs> Howard Thurman. And um, I really love my Angela's poems. Her poetry is very inspirational to me. And uh, I like Toni Morrison. I really like her one essay when she talked about how times of tragedy are precisely the times when artists go to work. Mm -hmm. So I was really inspired by those words. And then James Baldwin, I bought the fire next time last year at a book market. And I was like, amazing. Yeah. So those are a few. That's amazing. Um, I I just need to shout out for folks. Like not only is the visual art just, magnificent your words are piercing they have depth and weight and gravity to them so good job (laughs) i know that's a lot of work to do both and and share the wealth i mean come on you can draw you can write (laughs) like it's 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 enough for me just to string a sentence together as you can tell me struggling um oh gosh (laughs) let me talk about it's i i think it's really interesting you could have chosen to write a, a memoir, a, a fiction book, a kid's book, a how-to manual, poetry, a lot of different choices, but you chose a, a book of meditations. Why that particular form? Yes. So I knew at the time I was writing it that I would be writing something that would release before our next election year. Mm. And I just knew that the times did not feel like they were letting up, like things did not feel, I don't know what it was about pre-2020 versus post-2020, besides the fact that we lived through a global pandemic, of course, obviously. But I feel like I've either awoken to like another level of really what's going on on this planet, or things have just been really like way worse than normal. Either way, I was keenly aware and I I wanted to write a book for myself. (laughs) Uh. I was like, what could I pick up that would encourage me every day to do this work that I'm doing currently? And it may not be the most traditional kind of activism, but the work of trying to keep people's hearts soft and open is difficult (laughs) in light of everything. Yeah. And so I wanted to write something that would do that for me and help me do that for other people. And it was a little intimidating because people do, you know, especially in the Christian space, you think of a book like this and you're like, oh, you mean a devotional? And it's like, (laughs) I I don't know if I would call it a devotional because I most of the time we pick that up and hope that it uh, 
directly turns our eyes back to God, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also not one of those like self-care collections mm-hmm. or manuals of things because those have us turn our eyes towards ourselves, which is necessary. But I also, I realized that I was writing something that would turn some people's eyes towards their neighbor. And that could be a bit challenging and a bit intimidating. And also outside of our comfort zones, because we don't normally pick a book up and be like, what's in this for my neighbor today? You know, Uh (laughs) not something we often think about. That's right. And so I knew it was going to be a little bit of a challenge, but I knew that I needed those reminders to Mm. think outwardly if we were going to make it in these trying times. And I think a lot of us need to be reminded of that as well. That's so great. I love that you said you wrote a book for yourself um, in terms mm-hmm. of an audience, right? Like we always ask, especially with book, who's the audience? And you you make this avatar of somebody out there. And, and really and truly, a lot of what I write is for myself. <laughs> in other words, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the content, the book, the art that I personally need with the hopes that it will also help other people. So I just want to highlight and underline that point because I think a lot of the times we overcomplicate who our creative work is for. And it's perfectly okay to say it's for me in the Mm -hmm. sense of it fills needs or gaps that I have Mm -hmm. and nobody else is addressing it. So let's create the art that we wish were in the world. Yes. That's wonderful. And it is so good. It is so helpful. Even as I'm sort of reading it to, to, to offer a an endorsement or or to prepare for this conversation it's it's warming my heart like a heart on fire <laughs> um, it works no matter how you come to it the words and the art is so gripping so you structured the book around 10 pillars of good work i'll read off those 10 pillars love creativity justice hope awareness community consistency empathy honesty, redemption. So those are the 10 pillars. And you say these are the 10 pillars of a life of good work. And I want you to talk about good work. What is good work to you? Why do we need pillars that will help us form good work? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I have a poem. I actually don't, I don't think I put it in the book because I've just worn it out putting it everywhere else, but it's called the good work poem. It's actually right next to my desk. So I'm going to cheat and read that to answer that because (laughs) not the whole poem, but the definition. I I said that it's work that empowers and inspires, liberates and transforms, restores and softens. Mm, So I guess that's the definition I think of. (laughs) Uh, But yes, the the work that makes tomorrow better than today. And it's so expansive and it could be any good thing, which I consider an invitation and also a reminder that none of us are exempt because this is within all of our abilities. Yes. And so by by casting such a wide net, when talking about good work, I'm hoping that so many people can see themselves as invited to this, to living in this way. But yeah. And I really appreciate you saying we're all called to this work, but in the book, you also make a point about that work can look different and it can even look different Mm -hmm. for the same person in different seasons of life. So can you talk about how we all can play a part in this work? Yes. So I had one, somebody once tell me that 
they loved all the stuff I was talking about, but they feel guilty that they can't really participate to the level they want because they have like a, a family member who was very ill and, mm-hmm. and they were their primary caretaker. And I was like, thank you so much for doing that. That's your good work to do. Oh, yeah. And I think that's really important because capacity matters a lot. And we can spend a lot of time doing, like we can waste a lot of time not doing the work we're called to because it doesn't look like we think it should. And who knows that, what could happen if you really focus on leaning into what you're called to in the moment and how that can free you up in the future to to look different and feel different. But if you are filling those moments with comparison and regret and looking around at what everybody else is doing, you're not only waste you're not only wasting this current time that you've got, but who knows? You could also be wasting your future time because you're gonna get there and look back with regret of, oh, mm-hmm. I wish I could have been more present. I wish I could have done the good I was called to there. And we just there's just no time for any of that. You know, there's just no time. And and so I want to empower people that no matter what the work looks like for you right now, it's important that you fully lean into it because it all matters and it all counts. And even if you want to lean more into, let's say, justice or activism or advocacy, even in that, recognizing that you don't have to be an activist mm. to advocate for something that matters to you. And it doesn't always look like that really hard, heavy lift every time. But though, even those little moments where I can't give $50, but I can give 10, mm. that matters. Yeah. That's work and that's enough. And if, enough people decide I'm not going to keep discounting my offering because it doesn't look the way I think it should. We'll have less people comparing themselves and more people leaning into the work that's theirs to do. And I think that's very important. Very important. It reminds me of the parable of the widow's might where um, the widow gave, you know, the equivalent of pennies and um, Jesus asked, well, who gave more the wealthy person who gave a large sum of money or this poor person who gave, a little bit. And of course, it's the poor person because they gave all that they had, mm-hmm. all that was available, even though on a sort of numerical scale, it wasn't a large amount. I think that informs some of our good work is mm-hmm. we give what we can, we give what we have that is available. And if we give that for the sake of our neighbor, then God is pleased. It helps make that tomorrow better than today as you talk about is part and parcel of good work and we shouldn't beat ourselves up if we're not always on the front lines of a picket or a march or something of that nature so yeah i think that's really empowering thinking again about those 10 pillars do you think as we look at especially the church landscape right now are any of those pillars to you of particular importance or especially relevant right now? Hmm, that's a great question. I think right now, as I, as I as I reach for pieces to post online that I think would be in the most encouraging, I'm reaching for pieces in the empathy section the mm. most. Mm. And I think it's because... It's both actually empathy and community, but more so empathy because I like the idea that sharing one another's burdens is so 
imperative because it reminds you that you actually can't do this by yourself. And what both empathy and community, you know, have in common is that like, they both remind us that we need each other and we need to carry each other's burdens as much as we're able. And so even in thinking of empathy as, I have one piece that talks about the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion Mm -hmm. and about how they aren't to be compared against each other and they don't, we don't demonize sympathy um, and say empathy and compassion is better. Rather, we're like all three of them, you know, work in tandem to accomplish what we need to accomplish in that moment. And compassion takes it a step further because it converts those emotions into action, right? Mm. So I think you got to get one to one of them before you can get to the other one. In my opinion, you don't just arrive at compassion without having some sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. And so reminding people like, yeah, if your heart is hurting right now at the state of the world, okay, it should, because all of this should matter to you. Your empathy muscles are are working and that's mm-hmm. that's super important. And then being reminded that the weight of compassion is heavy and we share that weight. And we also don't go picking up all these loads without giving any consideration to whether or not we have the capacity to carry it. That also Great. is important because I, I want people to be here alive and healthy you know and i don't want us harming ourselves because we're carrying all of these things that actually aren't ours to carry alone amen in the seasons that we're in so yeah i keep coming back to empathy and remembering that we need each other to carry the weight of compassion and that we need to hold space and we need to remember that we're tied in this inescapable network of mutuality like dr king says where we're connected to each other and I just keep getting reminded of that and keep wanting to share that with other people. Yeah. It it reminds me, um, there are several passages in the gospels where there's this sequence of, it says Jesus looked, had compassion, and then that compassion is always followed by healing. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I I love that connection that you make between empathy empathy and compassion translating into justice. Um, Empathy. That's a good one. (laughs) That's a good one for us to remember. Um, I was drawn because of my particular work to two pillars in particular, justice and creativity. So Mm -hmm. in the justice section, you have this wonderful um, connection between the art world and how how, uh, the concepts of design taught you about margins. And can you can you talk about that and how it relates to justice? I love that you pointed that out. That's the first, that's the first time I've gotten to talk about this one. Yeah, it's really cool. I love it. So I was taught about the importance of margins during my self-taught design days where I'm looking into, you know, just trying to teach myself because I never took this in college because, you know, I was derailed. (laughs) You know, everything is self-taught, but I would, I would structure documents and I would notice that things were never really looking right as I would design things Mm. some some things would just drag on too long or it wasn't super readable and the importance of margins was reminding me okay you need to constrict everything to this one area this Mm. is the safe area and anything outside of it is liable to get cut off by the printers which has happened to me all the time Mm. or is just not Danger, danger. If you're outside of the margins, it's danger. And so I 
realized how that compared to society and how often those who are pushed to the margins and beyond are often outside of that area of safety that society deems to be safe. And those who don't fit the criteria of those who have the privilege in the society are often pushed out and pushed out. And I was reminded, yeah, that's why those who are on the margins are who we're called to because of how vulnerable they are and how likely they are and susceptible they are to injustice. And so I said that an unjust society centers the privileged. Good work reaches for those on the margins and then a just society fairly distributes its power and its resources. And so I also mentioned this and you probably noticed this too, because this is like what you're all about, but we often trade that hard work for this kind of centrism. <laughs> I noticed that part. And I was like, it. oh, I see. I see why he liked this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And centrism, you wish it was the answer because it's, it's just so easy and it doesn't really ruffle too many feathers. Mm. But in our attempts to keep the peace by not choosing a side, like there are people who are left out of our advocacy. There are people who aren't considered when they're on the outskirts of society. And so I wrote this piece to remind us that, you know, the margins are indeed our missions mm. and it's a different kind of centering. Yeah. It centers those who are the most vulnerable and that is choosing a side. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's so- I really like that. Yes, I, I definitely noticed the part where you were, you know, sort of critiquing that centrism, this kind of both sides ism, because you're right, it is easy, because then you get to critique both sides and say both sides are wrong. And I'm above the fray by not picking a side. But what you're saying is, yeah, the side is the people on the margins. <laughs> the side is the people who have been pushed to the side, and therefore yeah. justice takes sides. Yeah. But um, period, justice takes sides.com. Is that the website? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay, perfect. <laughs> we didn't even plan that. That was dope. Um. Continuing on in that justice pillar, so one of the beautiful things, maybe even the most seminal part of the book, is the way you take concepts and illustrate them. You talked about this at the beginning, like like that's your work. Um, you illustrate in particular the concept of equity and equality, and you talk about mm-hmm. the canvas and paint. Would you mm-hmm. unpack that metaphor for us? Because I thought it was so helpful. Oh, I love that. Some So some people, you know, they don't like, equity is not popular and it, there's not necessarily a perfect way to illustrate it to where everyone's happy with it. But I like the idea of canvas, of, of a canvas because it just kind of artistically speaking, really quite literally spoke to the fact that not giving everyone the same resources when they have more to deal with does not get you an equal outcome. And so, mm. so I basically had three different canvas sizes of a small canvas, a medium canvas, and a large canvas given to three different artists. But each artist was given the same amount of paint and told you need to cover the entire canvas with your paint. So the small canvas is able to do this with art uh, paint to spare. And the medium canvas is like bare, just barely able to do it. And then the large canvas could got like halfway and the artist is like, I can't finish this. There's, I don't have enough paint. And that's equality mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of senses. Like we give the same resources to a group of people, but these people have different needs. And because of injustice, 
some people have greater needs than others and need more resources to make up for that. And I illustrated equity as enough paint being given to each artist to completely fill their own canvases based on the size of each canvas. And so the small canvas gets as much paint as it needs. And so for the middle and so for the large Mm. and being proportionate with the resources ends up with equal outcomes, which is, I think the goal of equity is not to be like, Hey, we're going to push this group all the way to the top. And then that's just that forget everybody else. But it's in order for us to achieve equality, some people are going to need more resources and that's just that. It's just the truth. And so I wanted to illustrate that in an artistic way. It was smashing. So good. Um, such a very crystal clear mental image. And I love how you say, you know, some people need more resources because they have more to deal with. They have yes. a larger canvas. They have more issues that they're inheriting because of systemic abuses and injustices. And therefore, they need more resources to cover that. Um, so it's just, yeah, I thought, uh, like I said, I think that's, um, maybe the most brilliant part of not only the book, but your work is to take these sort of abstract concepts that might be verbally based or, or just in our, our, our minds and then display them visually in an literally at a glance, you can understand them. So that gets to another pillar, another pillar of yours, creativity. Yes. And we have these categories of what counts as creative artists, sculptures, sculptors, musicians, right? And then mm-hmm. now in the digital media age, we got this whole category of people called creatives. Um, and that's a special group, right, Danny? Like it's just only for a select few people who could truly be called artists or creatives. Just a few <laughs> people in the population like you and the rest of us scrubs. <laughs> We just bask in your brilliance. Is that right? You're all just regular. <laughs> We're just regulars. We're normies. <laughs> yes. And that's just not true. What a load of hogwash, Jamar. That's not true. And I really wanted to write write about that because if people didn't immediately see themselves as creatives, they would discount that entire section of the book. So I put this up front, I was like, just to be clear, I define creativity as taking one thing and making it into something else. Mm. So that encompasses quite a lot. I said, like, we are all makers inherently by nature. Like, you you get up and you make your bed. Maybe. I don't. Every time, but <laughs> You're one of those. You up, maybe you make a cup of coffee. You <laughs> make your schedule for the day. Like, yeah. these are all opportunities to create something in that day something that will affect the trajectory of your day of your future and that is a power that people should view as creative because they can wield it in creative ways if they do so so the world needs people who use what they have to take and make something better and so if you view your day and your work and your skills and your talents whether they're artistic in nature or not as an opportunity to be creative, you have a lot more chances to churn out beautiful things and things that will make our lives and our pursuits of justice and liberation easier. 
or more help you're more helpful to the cause because you're thinking oh I don't have to be like so and so to have a unique contribution and what I do and what I bring to the table is creative in nature if I'm trying to take something and make something better out of it or mm. turn it into something else so yeah yeah everyone's and I think, creative I think that's the key the 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 telos or the the end goal or results um or motivation behind it right because if if creativity is taking one thing and making it to another mm-hmm. I could take a match and turning a turn a building into ash yes but that's different than what yes. you're talking about because yes. why is that different oh yeah because it's destructive mm. and dr christina she told me this and i say it all the time because it's just brilliant christina she said Edmondson, uh, good friend yes dr yeah. christina Truth edmondson of truth table <laughs> yes. yes and faithful anti-racism yeah. so she said anybody can tear something down she said, but it takes a real creative to build something up. Mm. And so I think you make a good distinction between somebody who's just causing ruckus versus someone who, you know, is really trying to reimagine. And so I have another art piece that talks about the characteristics of change makers, and I use blocks and and it requires like the ability to notice when a system is harmful and then the courage to knock it down, right? Yeah, we need to dismantle it. And then a change maker still, you're not a change maker until you rise to the challenge of reorganizing it, restructuring it, and building and reimagining something new in its place. Mm. And that's creative. That's the creativity that we need. And you can't just be destructive and leave it there because yeah. what have you done? What have you done but left ash and mess and destruction? Yes. Yeah. This is my sort of burden right now as we're talking about in the political sphere, white Christian nationalism, um, mm-hmm. because a lot of times we're describing the problem, which is essential and necessary because a lot of people have no idea what it is. And so that work is ongoing. But at the same time, I get frustrated because we aren't being creative in the sense of mm. building something new and beautiful. And mm. in that sort of deficit what 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 we're what we're doing is overlooking the direct response to white christian nationalism which is the black church um mm-hmm. ways that we've developed uh to to address you know the dynamic between faith and politics anyway but but but, but what you're talking about in, in terms of creativity and constructing something i think all of that goes together in whatever issue or sphere of life that that we want and you sort of touched on this but i wonder if um you wanted to pontificate a bit more the, you gave a presentation at our uh, joy and justice conference in 2023 and it was just magnificently done can you talk a little bit about the role of imagination and creativity in the work of justice? Yes. Ooh, that talk. I wish I had my notes in front of me so I could cheat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go all the way back to that talk, but just yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you, you kind of do this organically, but if you can make that process a little transparent to us. Yes. So I, I tagged the word hopeful in front of reimagination because of the reasons we just talked about too, right? Because you can you can tear something down and make something more harmful. <sighs> like you can, you listen, we've seen that in history over and over again. Like 
you take one thing and we're like, oh, finally that's over. Finally, slavery's over. And you have made just another horrible monster in the form of Jim Crow. And it's like, thanks. Yes. And so I think hopeful reimagination reminds us that we are doing this with a purpose in mind, with an end goal. And that end goal is to see liberation and a reimagining mm. of society in a way where those who are most vulnerable are taken care of. And I think it's an encouragement to the disillusioned or the despondent that our efforts are not in vain and that there's a purpose to what we're doing, especially when it looks like sometimes that nothing's changing. Right, right. And I, I look back at who I used to be, um, and I say that so dramatically, but I've always been a pretty hopeful person. But I mean, in 2020, I was like I said earlier, I was like, this is changing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I listened to that NPR podcast episode called The Racial Reckoning That Never Was. Mm. And it went back into the statistics of how things never changed like mm. we thought they did. And actually, in a lot of ways, have gotten worse, which I believe wholeheartedly. And in the face of that reality, hopeful reimagination involves using memory to help us dream up alternative solutions uh, to our current realities. And the goal is still our collective flourishing. And so it may not have worked out the way we wanted it to, but we're not without hope mm -hmm. because we ourselves have been reimagined and redeemed in our most stank places, our mm -hmm. most stank <laughs> I like that. We've Jesus did that work of that of reimagining us. Wow. And so that gives me hope that the work is not finished. So that's kind of a <laughs> broad overview of that topic oh, of hopeful reimagination. And it's you. something that I'm still thinking through because I want to keep living out that reality. There have been times in history where they said that we were reimagining something and it was harm. <laughs> mm. And I think what, one thing I said was, you'll know if it's a reimagination or a remake by the end game. Like, what's the end result? There if the go. end result is to take us back yeah. to harm and trauma and bondage, that's not reimagination. That's a remake. Ooh. Right? Make America great again. Again. Make again. I, remake. That's been done. What you wanted <laughs> to do, you're acting like it's new. It's been done already. Boring, you're boring, you're basic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, imagination, man, I haven't thought about that. I think since that talk, so thank you for. I had to really pull that out in my mind. <laughs> I'm just like, what did I say? Well, it's all there because I think it relates to your discussion in the book about cautious optimism versus right. conscious optimism. Right. Can you? very briefly differentiate between cautious optimism and conscious optimism. Yes. I heard the term, I think, for the first time after Joe Biden won the presidency. And people were like, okay, I'm cautiously optimistic. Like, we'll see. And that totally made sense given the circumstances. <laughs> but it was something that was unfamiliar to me and not something that I could really relate to because I'm such a hopeful person like Enneagram 7, like you, right? Mm -hmm. We're just like mostly positive and jubilant and are enthusiastic about the future. 
And so I was like, yeah, this is it. It's a, we've got a long way to go, but I think this optimism, when I'm conscious of it, I'm hopeful for what's to come, but I'm mindful of the work that still needs to be done. And like, I hold those both. I hold Mm. them both with equal weight Mm. because when I'm holding my optimism more than my mind, like my, uh, the reality of what's happening, I fall a bit into naivete. Is that how you say it? Yeah. I get a little bit. Fancy. Hmm. That. Up on that one. Yes. <laughs> I get I get a little lost in the sauce of, oh, everything's gonna be great. And so when something is just not something just does not happen as I wanted it to, I'm so thrown off by the grief and the and the shock of it all. When really, if I would have been mindful, I'm like, okay, we have a new president, but it's the same system. Mm. So keep that in mind mm. while you're doing your work. Yeah. Don't get thrown off, you know. So, yeah, I love that. I love that. Again, you're taking these like 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 abstract concepts and making them concrete and visual, whether through words or the visual art. It's wonderful. Get this book, y'all. OK, Yay. just as we come to a close, um, how do you hope that people use this book in their day to day and what impact do you hope it's going to have? Yes, I hope that people in some ways can treat it like a. Like a daily reading, I I. I hope that people who may not necessarily be super comfortable with faith or their faith journey right now can Mm -hmm. still find goodness in here and something that they can use to be filled with that hope and that encouragement in their journeys, but then also can read it and be reminded like God has something for me to do today for someone else. Mm. And there are days where in order for me to love my neighbor as well as I need to, I need to take care of myself right now. That's important. And there's moments in here for that. Mm. But the majority of this is outward. And it's my hope that somebody can start or end their day with it and be like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to show up better for so-and-so in this way. Mm. And that would be my goal. Mm. That's beautiful. Heart on fire. One hundred meditations on loving your neighbor well what is the best way for folks to get their own copy yes you can get it wherever you get your books and she and target y'all walk (laughs) into target if you're listening to this at the end of november before (laughs) the end of december you can go to it's real i love it we always walk yeah. out them with more than we intend at target so when you go yes. into target intend to get this book whatever else you get i don't know but definitely That's all you. <laughs> <laughs> thank Yay. you so much oh happy danny you have made us oh so happy with your work with your uh vivaciousness and your wisdom we're th- we're so thankful thank you for being on footnotes Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Mission accomplished. I get to check this off the bucket list. Footnotes. (laughs) Raise your bar, but yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.